Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 154. And if you're listening to this and you're wondering how in God's name can you sell your business for an outrageous price, this is the episode you have to listen to because we have an author on the show and an investment banker. His name is Kevin Short, and he wrote a book, Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price, an insider's guide to getting more than you ever thought possible. And Kevin's got quite the track record to write the book and then to be able to describe to you all the different ways that that is possible. He's done hundreds of transactions. He used to manage money for a family office and, and started doing deals. He bought a couple companies himself, and then he realized he absolutely loved doing deals. And early on in his career, he found out that there was one company that paid double than the other buyers or potential buyers, and he really was curious and trying to figure out why. Well, lo and behold, Kevin found out that they got a six-month rate of return on that purchase. And the reason I love this episode is because I get that question a lot when I talk about transaction value, because a buyer has their own motives of wanting to purchase your business. And this whole multiple of EBITDA and financial perspective kind of goes out the window when they have their own metrics that they're looking at of why they would pay a certain price. And the main goal is to try and figure out where is that person that's going to buy the company for an outrageous price and then reverse into why they're going to pay or why should they pay the price that you want to sell it to them for. And so not only do we dive and peel that whole concept apart, we talk about the investment banking process and the different types of advisors from brokers to investment bankers, why your tax and uh, M&A attorney are unbelievably important and the due diligence and preparatory work you need to do in order to be ready for this kind of stuff. So we know that the due diligence is miserable, but we, and Kevin describes how the due diligence process from a buyer is so unbearable that doing this ahead of time will absolutely get you the money that you need. And also it helps emotionally as you start to put in all the pieces together before you decide to actually go to market. A couple other things that we talked about as we're trying to wrap this together for the outrageous prices, when and how to tell your management team that you're thinking about selling and how different stay and comp bonus programs can help them align themselves with you and what you're trying to do. And overall, throughout the entire episode, we're talking different stories. We've got really good uh, creative text and deal structure tips that I think are unbelievably important. And the, the big takeaway I want you to have is that no matter what, because if you've never done this before, hearing stories over and over and over again from people like Kevin and myself going back and forth, you'll continuously build on your foundation of knowledge of what it's going to be like if the third-party perspective is going, and third-party buyer is going to be your route continuously learn more about this stuff. It will absolutely pay you dividends down the road because this is the stuff that I wish I would have done before we sold. Another last takeaway is that the whole point of my business with my team is that we're quarterbacking all this stuff and helping you wrangle a lot of this stuff together that even Kevin and the investment bankers don't necessarily do. So as you're going through our, our different projects, we're helping you do all of this stuff. So that way when it's time to hire Kevin, you, it's easier for them because you know what you want, you know why you want it, you've done some of the due diligence and you've got your point, you've got yourself to the point where you're ready to, to really kick it into gear because the timeline has shortened up to the six to 12 month timeline that an investment banker is ready if you've chosen the third party avenue. And then it's all about aligning your motives and what you determine as successful with the person that could potentially give you the outrageous price. So I absolutely hope that you love this episode. I had a blast and I thought we efficiently covered some good ground. So without further ado, here's my episode with Kevin Short. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good morning, Ryan. I'm good. How are you doing? Doing good. Like I was just saying as we were chatting uh, uh, prior to hit and record, I have had your book on my shelf. Unfortunately, it's since after we sold, but still quite a few years now. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, I, I think that any listener that hasn't picked it up um, absolutely needs to. But, like, let's, you know, 
let's go back and so it's called you know sell your business for an outrageous price and we're going to get dive we're going to dive into that and your experience which i and you got a bunch of great exercises by the way kevin at the back that are fantastic um but you know let's go back to how in the heck did you get into the the space that you're in and why did you decide to write the book yeah two different points so going back to the 80s i was managing money for a, a family office and um they wanted me to go out and start acquiring businesses for them, which I did. And so that's where I cut my teeth in the M&A world. And then after I put together some equity, I then bought my own companies, did that till about 91, sold out, and um, started the, in investment banking practice. And it uh, turns out that's what I love doing is doing the deals. And so along the way, I've done a lot of deals. About 15 years ago, I had a deal where we uh, took it to market. Uh, it was in the steel processing center. So this, this wasn't, you know, high tech or cure for cancer. This was plain Jane business. And when we took it out to market and collected our bids, uh, the bids, most of them were around a five multiple. But we had one buyer, a big, a big publicly held company, come in at a 10 multiple. Hmm. And, you know, we were confused, like, what in the world are they doing? They had the same data as everybody else. And then, uh, but we, of course, we didn't say that. We <laughs> right. closed the deal. Our, cl- our, client, our client was uh, ecstatic with the uh, the outcome. And uh, and so the deal went really well. And, and still didn't know why they were willing to pay that. Until about six months after closing, I ran into the buyer. And I said, how's it going? He goes, because by that time, I figured that he had... Uh, uh, figured out that he paid twice or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he says, "If you get any more businesses like that, one I bought from you," which <laughs> caught me off guard. I said, uh, "I'm thinking to myself, well, if you're willing to pay twice what it's worth, I can probably find you one between before noon today." <laughs> um, but, I, yeah. but I said, "Well, tell me, tell me what's going on. How's how's it? Well, you know, we closed the one plant that was losing money, and we." Um, Got rid of the union, and we got and we put some of our products down to their channel. Took some of their proprietary products and put it uh, through our worldwide channel. He said we have made our money back in six months. Well, when I sold it for a nine, ten multiple, I thought that was ten years of earnings, mm-hmm. right? By, by definition. So it turns out that I had sold it for six months in earnings. Now. Client didn't care because they got twice what they expected. But my point was, I didn't know things that the buyer knew. The buyer had figured out that they could make a lot more money with this company than what was happening. And so that opened my eyes that as a seller's representative, I don't know what that buyer's thinking ever. So I began the journey of trying to figure that out and in designing different tests to figure out what the buyer was really going to do with the business because they don't want to tell you that. So you kind of have to kind of come at it indirectly. So ultimately, uh, I started the book, writing the book, because I was beginning to experience more and more of these outrageous price deals, which we define as um, two or more times the average multiple for that particular industry. And so that's where the book came from. I was trying to get into writing what I was experiencing, what I was learning, what I was feeling about the process. I started the book over five times because I kept learning different things. <laughs> yeah, about I, I can relate. It. <laughs> so, absolutely. You, you got to get it right. So eventually we got it right, and then it took it out, and I had an auction between the publishers, and we eventually um, selected our publisher, and uh, we went to press, and the book came out. And then the, the next challenge was, was anybody going to care? <laughs> you know, you write a book, does anybody care? Right. So it actually sold. It sold very well. It made it to the top of Amazon's list for a little bit of a business book. And we have sold a lot of copies and we've picked up a lot of clients that have read it and said, yeah, that's for me. And that's so awesome. it's, it's been a home run for us. That's, super so that's cool. the journey. That's how I got into doing deals. And then I figured out how to do outrageous deals. Uh, and, and, and so that, that, that's what got me here today. Well, it's good news on the book front because I'm in the process of reiterating again, and I know that it's it's a long journey. So I'm glad to hear it's not as easy as it is a long journey, and the <laughs> publishers will not help you market it. You got to market that's, it yourself. Yeah, that's what so, I heard. You know, you well, learn a lot. So here's what I think we could do for the listeners: is I, you know, I want to talk a couple of things about 
you know, what you would, uh, and peel back, you know, why that buyer and how they got their, their, the, the, um, return in six months. And then you've got a bunch of great stuff about proactively doing stuff before you go to market. And then also, you know, kind of, I'm just kind of planting seeds here. And then also about understanding why that buyer, what they want to do with that, how that might affect the the goals of the owner. And maybe I'll just kind of set the stage, Kevin. And, I, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this. So, you know, what I've been saying to people after, you know, this is 154 podcasts or something like that. And is, you know, the business valuations, you know, you go back to your like your 10 times, you know, the, the, the multiple of, a, of the EBITDA is the how many years rate of return they're going to get. Right. And, you know, that's a financial mindset. Right. And I think about like what even we did. So the company that bought us is a great company, but they had, you know, very specific reasons to buy us. Right. From the fact that they, you know, we weren't doing telecom and we had a few thousand customers and they were able to knock out a big, big competitor, strategic you know, alliances. And so there's this whole, like, I, I, we, I called it the intrinsic value where it's like, you know, there's a return on your cash flow, right? So you're getting just like in real estate, you're, there's just some value of that, that cash flow based on the risk, <clears throat> which is how a financial buyer would look at. But then what I, like I, I say is that there's transaction value, which is when and how that buyer is going to pay something, right? You're handing off the baton to someone, which is a whole different game <laughs> because all the buyers have different reasons. I don't know, like, you know, I, I, how do you navigate the difference between financial buyers? And I don't know if you got any comments about how I've articulated that, but it seems to have kind of resonated with some of the listeners out there. Yeah, you, you really want to get out of the financial buyer mindsets um, as a seller because all you can do is put a lid on the deal because uh, you're selling basically to to a spreadsheet exercise, not to a business mindset. So I, I agree 100%. So we do two things to protect our clients, making sure, protect meaning making sure they get the best uh, value. So when we start the process, we do a lot of research to find the, the more obvious buyers, the ones that could realize the synergies, as a result, pay more, and then once you have the checkbook, so they can pay more because they can rely on synergies all day long. But if they don't have any money, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, they, so you got to start there. So that's that's where we start is finding the best buyer. At the same time, we're going to run an auction, and so we want hundreds of potential buyers in the process so that we can have a decent auction. Because sometimes we we call it getting an outrageous price. Uh, two times the average multiple. Sometimes we get an average, uh, an outrageous price intentionally because we found the right buyer, or by accident, meaning uh, we we ran an auction and somebody came out of that auction and paid the price that we didn't even know who they were before we started the auction. So we did a, a deal in the public safety market last year, and we took it to market. We had probably three or four hundred potential buyers identified people that were in that space or a similar space. And we really, we had three people identified to pay the best price, but none of them cared. None of them wanted to play. Uh, but all of a sudden, when we asked for offers from uh, the buyers, after we had marketed to them and answered their questions, we then asked for uh, offers at the same time so we can work them against each other. The offers came in at five to six times EBITDA. One of them came in at 11. It was a very large private equity group. And so it didn't make any sense at all, but we closed the deal with them, all cash, by the way. And <laughs> afterwards, we found out that they had, they had bought a company just like our clients. And then when they bought, when they after they bought, they realized it was broken. And this had just happened two months before uh, we went to market, so we didn't know they had even bought it. And um, so they bought our company to fix the other one. So they didn't really care what they had to pay because they had to salvage that investment. So you don't know that you don't know that. So that was an outrageous price by accident. So we run our process to make sure that we capture both opportunities, the ones that are the obvious ones and the ones that are not so obvious. That's awesome. I, I interviewed this guy um, named Chris Voss. He wrote this book called Never Split the Difference. And he's got this whole thing on negotiating, which is there's this black swan that you don't know about on the other side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the whole goal is to mm -hmm. figure black swan out. And so that, that would be, you know, like what you, the example of what you just gave. And I'm I'm curious, Kevin, like how how do you go about finding the what the actual motives are? Because I mean, you, you you might not ever find the black swan, but I think you know as I as I've given like ancillary you know advice to people as they're you know hiring an investment banker, they're working a deal. I'm like you know just 
really do everything you can to figure out why that person wants to buy it because then you know the leverage and you can actually back into their rate of return. I mean, like what are what are different exercises that you've seen or how do you how do you go about doing that? I'll give you an example. We did a deal uh, in the produce business. So this company did about $110 million a year of uh, processing lettuce and various vegetables. You know, he comes in on one side of the building in a tractor trailer, unload it, and it goes through this sanitary process and comes out the other side of the building, all packaged up, ready to go to uh, the grocery store. So one location in Ohio, there's a big player in that business that had locations all over the country, but all their locations and distribution centers were around the perimeter of the U.S., and our client was pretty much in the Midwest. And so we figured out how much time uh, in trucks, you know, it was an estimate Mm -hmm. of the trucks they were running across the middle of the country, deadheading with no freight and the cost of all that. So we we went to them and said, look, you know, the average multiple for this industry is a um, seven multiple. Our client's making $7 million, but we're not going to sell it to you for $49 million. We're going to add $2 million more to the EBTA, which adds another $14 million to price, because that's how much more money you're going to make for this company than our client does. Mm-hmm. And they disagreed, but that, eventually they paid it because they realized that they were right. going to get that benefit. And they, they, and they knew that. They, but what was different was we had figured it out. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't going to give it away. So that's a big part of it is, Figuring out why they're there, we we did a medical waste business, and very, they were small, three and a half million dollars a year. This billion dollar player kept sniffing around, and wanting to buy them, and we ended up getting a twelve multiple because we figured out that they wanted to get this company out of the marketplace because they were beginning to really take share away from them, mm-hmm. and they were they were worried about this company expanding. So we didn't know that at first. It took a little while to figure it out. But you, to your point, you got to figure it out. You got to be creative. You got to. We, we use a process that the um, my co, co-author on the book named Hover and Dive. You know, you kind of hover over the deal, asking questions, looking for the outrageous price moments. And when you see something or smell something that, that, that uh, seems to say that, then you dive down like you're coming in from 30,000 feet. <laughs> and you, dive, you, you dive into it and chase it down to see if that really is an outrageous opportunity. Uh, for the seller. Well, you know, what's super interesting, Kevin, is like, you know, I think a lot, I'm curious, and because also for the listeners, how many deals you've gone through, but you know, like when I think when I look at, because all all the entrepreneurs I hang out with or our clients or the listeners, it's like, most entrepreneurs are creative as hell, right? I mean, they're, they've worked their way into their marketplace and are competitive and creative. And you know, when you get out of the financial mindset and this, if you determine that the third party strategic, you know, to get the outrageous price is your avenue, they can probably contribute a lot to this too, because you're just really doing more work than the potential buyer and you're doing the deal for them and making it almost irresistible. I mean, do you see that? Like a lot of entrepreneurs have got really good ideas too. They really do. Uh, What they're not used to is uh, the leverage that goes on in the deal. If you think about it, the entrepreneurs, first time they sold, they're up against a team that does this every day for a living. Mm-hmm. So part part of it's an act. You know, we, we almost call it a play. And the entrepreneur plays a significant part if they're capable. You know, not everybody can play the lead role. So we try to assess that early on. Can this? Can we put this seller in front of the buyer? And can he, you know, say his lines and act his part convincingly? <laughs> some of them can. Some of them can't. And that's a critical point. Uh, point of information. So you're right. Uh, they can play a big role. They know things about the buyers we don't know. They've right. been in the business their whole adult life. We have to take those pieces, those little nuggets of information, and then leverage them into uh, making that buyer want to buy the business. Well, yeah, like even to your point, I, yeah, I, I wasn't even going far as like, you know, playing a lead role, but you're right. But I, I was just even thinking like, as far as like the brainstorming about the people and the players and like what's happening in the marketplace. I mean, they know more about that stuff than pretty much anybody sometimes. So, you know, at least give yeah, it, they really do. giving you seeds to explore, yep. right? And to research. Yep. Oh. They do. They know, and they know the scuttlebutt that's going on in the industry. And so they, they and then they can help us plant seeds. Sometimes we'll just plant information in the industry, trying to create interest from a particular buyer and to drive them towards us. Mm-hmm. So they can be very helpful in playing that part at a trade show, 
it's you know a demo of the, it's a buyer the buyers out there in the marketplace demoing new equipment and our client can help create uh, some controversy uh, or disturbance in the industry that points the buyers to us when you're when you're doing this kevin and you know and i'm just kind of from my own example that i was telling you before we got on the show is like you know a you know, each one of these buyers, like you, even the few stories that you've referred, there's different, like there's different operational procedures and outcomes afterwards, right? So in mine, you know, there was a lot of redundancies. So 60% redundancies in employees and systems and all that stuff. So it was more of a gut and roll up and versus, you know, someone that's going to take a new product and then redistribute it through their channels. So they're going to probably beef up the operations. You know, how, how do you, what I see a ton, Kevin, is that trying to align, and this is, we got five principles, is, is the first one is like, what do you want? What are your drivers like that make you happy? How do you align those with like, if you, if you have like three or four or five strategic buyers and they all have different kind of outrageous prices, how do you align like what the owner wants? I mean, in another small example would be is there was another gentleman that was on my show. He was like 53 or something when he sold. He sold to, to Hoover's. And they literally fired everybody pretty much. <laughs> and he was miserable after that, even though he made like $40 million or 30, whatever it was. So he just didn't realize that that was important to him until afterwards. So how do you reconcile the outrageous price, the buyers, and then also what the owners want? Yeah. What an what owner thinks they want and what they really want can change during the deal. Because they, they don't really have any experience of talking to buyers are thinking through this process. So part of what's going to happen is they're going to gain experience in the process working with these buyers. And they're going to develop a different model in their head of what they want than maybe what they started with. And we tell them that. So we, you know, we have to be patient. We got to walk through all the various different um, avenues on this deal. So you have a you have options. We, our job is to present them with options. So they believe that they're making the best decision, but they don't know what the best decision is until they see options. And so in that, they're going to learn a lot. You know, they may think employees are important to them, but then when it gets right down to what that's going to cost them to take care of the employees, sometimes they'll say, you know, those employees take care of themselves. So we see that. Uh, you, you never know what's going to be important to them until you really get out there. So all we can do is, yeah, and have you know, so we have a lot of conversations. We make sure our clients have dinner with every prospective buyer. So, so we may start with four hundred buyers, but we're getting through our marketing process. Uh, we're going to narrow it down to five, five who've made an offer that's acceptable, and now we'll invite each one to town, wherever the seller lives, and we're going to have dinner with that buyer and the seller, and then the next day we're going to have a half day presentation with with that buyer. Well, the reason we had the dinner the night before is, let's see what is, how this buyer behaves socially. Mm-hmm. You know, do they have an alcohol problem? Are they idiots? Are they rude to the staff? Um, <laughs> so true. All, all the things, all, and they do all this. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you have got a big check, but like, I wouldn't like hang out with you if you paid me $200 million. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly right. And, <laughs> and so they, they, you need, so we're developing tests for the buyers so our client can see what they how they behave under various different scenarios mm-hmm. and, and that's what you can do is design tests and let them watch what happens and we do a lot of that throughout the process so part of it is let's say you've got two or three people who are offering the same amount of money how do you decide which one you want and that's another area that we design different tests to see who we really want to do business with so we will um you know if we, if we have multiple buyers that are similar We'll put together legal documents, which is the last stage usually, and we give them to them to say, all right, what, what's your opinion of these? Because legal documents can be a real stumbling block. But if, <laughs> if we have multiple buyers and they're still and they're still going, you know, they're still in the process, we want to see how they're going to do with our documents. Because if they're going to blow up over the legal document, let's do it now while we've got two other buyers there. Oh, totally. So we'll- perfect, perfect, perfect example, Kevin. We're like we had a few buyers in our deal, uh, potential buyers. And I mean, we had thousands of customers, right? And like, this is a multi, multi-million dollar transaction. And the CEO of one of them was arguing about a $200 a month contract. And we're like, right. even like, what? Like, are we even talking about this right now? <laughs> right. 
Right. That's what. So you need more and more because you, you, it's a short period of time you get to know that buyer, but you have to live with them for a, you know a long time. Often, it's like going to Vegas. So, so, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. You want to know that. So that, that's why. Right. So you develop tests for the buyers to make sure you know who you're going to do a deal with. Absolutely. So, Kevin, um, for because of your the process that you've described uh, in in your book, you got the level one, two, and three um, outrageous advisors. And I think you know when you're talking the strategic research that you're doing and the process that you're talking about, and just even the handholding from the dinners and all that stuff, give the the audience and the listeners because I you know honestly I everybody hears different things and you can't pin one definition of an M and A intermediary to the tree if you tried. So, like in your definition. Where would someone expect a service like this? What's your definition of broker versus an investment banker? Kind of just, you know, it could be just a big broad brushstroke. Yeah, so you have business brokers who work on the smaller deals. I would say they work under uh, under a million dollars of profitability is where the business brokers work. And they'll, you'll, they don't charge a retainer um, as a rule. Uh, they get, you know, 10% of the proceeds. So it's a very different world. And in that case, the business brokers work on one for the buyer to come to the door, and then they work on one buyer at a time. Um, it's a very, very important service for the smaller companies that are out there because the investment bankers will not work on the smaller deals. And you, and you need professional representation. It's really hard for a seller to sell a company for themselves most of the time. So the investment bankers are going to be working typically in – the uh, couple million dollars of EBITDA all the way up. And you'll see different levels, particularly at the lower level. You know, you, you get up to 25 million, you're going to see Goldman Sachs and all those people. Um, at the million to $20 million level, you're going to see the M&A specialist, uh, lower middle market folks. And you got to really do your homework because it's a little, a little bit more difficult to assess them. I think it's, uh, like but it, they're all, I call it like the no man's land, like the, you know, the, 800 to 2 million in EBITDA. It's like a decent sized company, life changing for the owner. Probably big, you know, a lot of employees in it. It's like there's just very difficult to find someone that's, that's actually, yeah, there, there's not, there's not a universal standard. There is not. And uh, there's really no licensing required. There's no professional standards. Uh, so that you've got to do your homework and make sure you're getting somebody that's, that's a pro. Uh, and the best thing to do is check with your MA attorneys in the community. The accountants and in in other people who have sold, it all uh, will help you quite a bit. So then, you know, as I as like in the the uh, space that you play in the investment banking world, you know, talk about the proactive stuff. And I think this all kind of ties together: the deal killers, the stuff that people should be doing. You know, and and the reason I want you to you to say this because you know we preach it a lot, but I think a lot of as you and I were saying before the show is like. It's it's hard freaking work, and but there's reasons to be doing this stuff from the proactive side, and then those could be potentially major deal deal killers. So you want to kind of give some of the stuff that you see that um, should be worked on, but then and why they're so important. Yeah, it, it, the easiest way we try to get our clients to put on the hat if they were buying their company, what would they be worried about? So customer concentration, for example, as much as a seller blows it off saying that they've been a customer for 20 years to a buyer. That's a really big deal because they could lose all the money that they just invested. Uh, management team is critical. Again, that seller's going away and the buyers don't believe that their seller's going to stay around. If he does stay around, they're going to say, well, you know, he's not going to be real, real motivated. And the first time we tell him to do something he doesn't like to do, you know, he's got $40 million in his pocket, so he's going to walk away. So you better have a good secondary management team. So those are critical. Customer concentration, the management team, uh, the books, the books have got to be really good shape. We sold companies with, with books that were not in good shape, but it makes it a lot harder and it's going to cost you money. So yeah, I'm not saying it's an audit, but you ought to be thinking about them being reviewed for sure. And the more, and the sooner you can do that before you actually do a deal, the better so they can see a good history. So that's critical. You get, you've got to look at all your legal and don't you don't ignore it. Don't put it off to yourself because then it could be too late. You've got to get all that cleaned up. If you've got some shareholders from 20 years ago you haven't seen, uh, you need to get their shares back in and get them retired, and get them fixed. But legal, illegal, the tax work has to be perfect because these buyers today are going to figure out 
everything that's wrong with the business. They, they leave no rock uh, unturned. And so you've never been through due diligence. So you've been through this. We just sold a business. It's a, it's a pretty good sized deal at $100 million, 20-year-old company run by some real pros. And when we got down to the final due diligence, the buyer found that they had not done their sales tax correctly for 14 years uh, in every state. And they had not done the 401k filings. So both those had to be corrected before we could close. And it delayed closing for three months. Now, this was a company that you would have sworn was buttoned up. So that's my point. Don't leave any rock unturned because the buyer is going to ask about everything. (laughs) Emphasize, exclamation point, everything. (laughs) Yeah, and sometimes three times about everything. So it'll drive you crazy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, that and if that, and there could be more than one group in there doing the due diligence. Due diligence, particularly with private equity buyers, has become almost unbearable today uh, because they have made some real mistakes in the past. They're going to make sure they don't do it in the future. Uh, we deal with about 4,000 private equity firms across the U.S., and they have become uh, very aggressive about due diligence. Our, our clients, Entrepreneurs don't understand why, because they they know they're not lying to them, but they they don't understand that these buyers have to uh, be assured as to everything is correct. They don't want any surprises. Well, and just a layer on top of that, Kevin is the PE firms are overpaying for for companies right now, and so the, <laughs> like there's the, there, there's the ripple effect, and so they're going to do everything they possibly can to make sure that the ten times that they're paying on a financial purchase is going to be somehow paid back. <laughs> well, that's a good point uh, because they are paying up right now. I wouldn't say they're overpaying. <laughs> nah. but I, they are they are paying quite a bit. Um, the cash is because exchange. of that you Yeah, they, that well because you're right. They have to be positive they're getting a good deal. Mm-hmm. And that there aren't any flaws or mistakes. I just talked to a private equity firm that bought a company in 17 and the management team walked out the week later. And it blew up the whole deal, and they paid over $100 million for this company. So that's what they worry about. They worry about the things they don't know. I want to go back. I want to touch on the management team again in a sec, but um, just to kind of wrap up that due diligence, you know, Kevin, I, you know, what I experienced in, through our transaction and what I see is a lot, especially in the called million, you know, you know, 500 to 5 million in EBITDA range is that mm-hmm. the advice so outside of the investment banker or broker because we already touched on that is the advisors the owner doesn't know how to hire these the right people right because if you think about all the things that you just listed that could be totally screwed up and blow up the entire deal they're 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 getting what i like to call retail advisors right someone that's been filing their taxes for 30 years and has never done a transaction or they're you know right. who's a you know business, a corporate attorney what have you seen about like i mean are you seeing the same thing of like how skewed the actual M&A advisors are on this stuff? I and mean, you got any advice for the listeners? Yeah, we're pretty aggressive with our new clients saying, uh, we'd like to talk to your attorney. And basically, we're going to assess to see if they can hold their own with a Jones Day, which is the largest law firm in the world. It's often they represent the buyer. So, you know, Jones Day may have five M&A specialists, and they're up against your guy who does wills and trusts. Well, that's going, to be, that's going to be a bloodbath, yeah. and it's going to cost you a lot, and you won't even know what hits you. We, we did a deal. We helped a, a publicly held company buy a company. This, this is a nightmare. We helped them buy this company, and we, we positioned the, uh, the documents to be, we're going to pay you five times uh, your EBITDA, according to GAP. That's how we were going to assess the seller did, he, and the seller's attorney didn't even know what gap was. The seller thought he was making; they, they thought they were making a million dollars a year. And so, uh, oh. our buyer, we knew he was making five hundred thousand dollars, but he had agreed to a formula five times the EBITDA according to Gap. So, post closing, when we did the post closing adjustments, the price dropped by half, and the the buyer recovered half their price. The seller had to give up half their proceeds. Because he didn't know what he was doing. I, it, and like, so you, oh, I know. you got to have an attorney who's, who's really, really has a lot of experience to an M&A. And you have to have an accountant somewhere in the mix who understands M&A income tax. 
so you're not giving away half the deal in taxes. Well, and it's so crazy, uh, Kevin, on that because like you know those two roles, you know, and your role, like they're they're unbelievably important having those people on the team because like and you know. The, the, there's like little check boxes like it's the experience and the the knowledge of understanding where the needles in the haystack are and that's why people get paid that because they should get paid for i mean there, there's a return on the investment on that like the the deal yeah. you know uh two things on that note i'm curious when you're like we could have done this 338 h10 which we didn't yep. no one yep. tell it was and i'd like to hear your you know you might articulate a little bit better for my listeners and then i there's another buddy who called me up he's got an eight million dollar company and he's like, I'm like, so he's got an offer. I'm like, well, has your CPA done a net proceeds calculation? And he's like, what's that? I'm like, it's how much money goes in your bank, dude. <laughs> like, you know, right. and the, exactly. the CPA didn't know, you know, what the deal structure was, how it was going to be. I mean, it's just like, it makes me want to throw up, honestly. So I got, right. <laughs> and he, can you explain maybe in your words what the 338 H10 is? Because I've talked about it quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, I'm not a tax professional, but we see the 338 H10 a lot. We've been using it for 10 years, and it was introduced to us because we typically, when we take a deal out to marketplace, we've done this for 15 years, we tell the buyers or prospects we need to do a stock sale because we want to get capital gains treatment versus ordinary income treatment. And the buyers say, no, 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 we don't want to buy your asset. We don't want to buy your stock. We want to buy the asset. So anyway, that's where the wrestling match starts. So at some point, uh, the more sophisticated buyers started talking about the 338 H10 election, which is a IRS code reference. It's also a good test for your accountant or your attorney. If you mention 330 H10 election and they look at you like your two-headed monster, then you can just say thank you very much and go on down the street. I bet you it happens at 80, 90% of the time when I bring it up. Yeah, it does when you're using these smaller firms. So what it does is it allows you as a seller to get capital gains treatment as if you had sold stock. It allows the buyer to get a step up in basis as if they had bought assets. So it's very complicated, a little expensive to do. But generally, you, the buyer pays for all the fees associated with it. But that's the premise. You get stock treatment as if you'd sold stock. Uh, they get treatment as if they'd bought your assets. And so it's a pretty good tool, uh, but it's pretty expensive. Not every deal qualifies for it. There's a whole bunch of rules around it. So you'd have to have your um, accountant uh, assess it to be even an option. Because today, we're seeing it in about half of our deals, mm-hmm. uh, the new tech. The new tax code makes it even better than it used to be because of how quickly they can write off the assets under the tax oh, yeah. code changes. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's been a great tool, but it's something you need to know if it if you even qualify. You have to be the right kind of legal entity, for example. So it's part of the strategy, and that you need to do up front with your accountant to get it ready for sale. Yeah, and that's it's a big a, deal. No, it is a big deal. And, and like, even like to take that one step further, because this all has to do with how much money is going to go in your bank. I mean, like, we, yep. <laughs> I mean, how many times I see where like most owners don't know what they're going to get until it's all done. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's super sad, actually. Is that, I mean, yeah, yep, they deal with the group. You're right. You got to deal with the net. Yep. Yep. So then going back to what I was saying about the management team, Kevin, is there's always this huge question every time I do my keynotes of like, okay, when and how do you tell your management team, especially if you're doing proactive work, which is the work that we do, you know, like, so, you know, what's the spin? What do you see? And so when and how do you tell certain employees? And then what are different creative ways you've seen people get comp to make sure that everybody's on the same page? Yeah, two two different strategies. So we never ever agree with telling employees ahead of time. That never works out. I mean, imagine putting yourself in their mm-hmm. shoes. Now you're worried that a sale's coming and how am I going to make, if I lose my job, how am I going to pay my kids college? How am I going to pay my mortgage? So employees tend to freak out when they learn the company's for sale. So we don't tell them because as a rule, they're going to keep their job. So, but why worry them during this six to nine months it's going to take to get this done? So that's job one, do not tell them. Two, the buyer may insist on meeting one to three of your key employees, particularly salespeople or general manager, CEO, uh, if they're not shareholders. So if they're going to be part of the selling process, then we do have to tell them, but we don't want to tell them haphazardly. 
what we do is we design what we call a stay bonus for those employees. So we sit them down and say, look, you know, I'm getting to be older. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I may sell. I'm worried someday I could be disabled or I could die. So I want to put this agreement in front of you that I'll sign that says if any one of those three things happen, death, disability, or sale, that you're going to be paid a bonus to stay around and, and run this business either for the for help with this business for the new buyer or for my wife and family while they're trying to figure out what to do. So I need to pay you extra to stay. So state bonuses have been around for a long time. What we've changed is the way they get paid. Because in the old days, you paid that employee to stay till the event. So if somebody died, you've paid them a big bonus to stay. If somebody, if the business sold, you paid them a big bonus to, to day of sale. What we found, that was almost kind of in, in inducing the employee to leave at that point because now they got a big check in their <laughs> right. pocket. Whoops. So, so t- yeah, exactly right. It had the opposite effect. So today <laughs> we break it into break it into three payments. We pretty much pay them somewhere between a year and two years of their average comp, and then we pay it in thirds. We pay a third a day of closing, a third a year later, and a balance two years later. That way you're insured that they're going to stay around and help for a couple of years, either help the new buyer or help your family. So that's something you want to do. You want to fund that. You want that employee to be sure they're going to get their money. Uh, it helps a great deal. The buyers love it because now they know that employee is going to be there for a while. The other key to that agreement is it gives the employee confidence and security that they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So if the new company comes in and fires them the next day without cause, then the balance of those three payments come forward. And so I'll do it to one point. The idea being now they need that money to pay their overhead while they're looking for a new job. That's really the purpose of the agreement is to get them comfort that they're going to be okay financially. to give you comfort that you get somebody in place to run the business in case something happens, and it gives them the new buyer comfort. Uh, so it's a win-win for everybody. The employee relaxes. And sometimes if the, if the employee has a lot of value to the buyer, then we use them in the selling process. because Now they're under a state bonus agreement. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not afraid of it. Now they embrace it and they become part of it. So it's, it's really a win-win. Yep. So uh, t- those are perfect. I, love, I appreciate that because I think the the takeaways are, you know, the the overall team of the, all the employees, at, yeah, absolutely not. But I think most people, you know, they get really kind of paralyzed with what to do with those few people because, you know, especially in today's world where there's so many baby boomers that are going to be retiring, it's like everybody knows the owner's 65 or 70, right? So something's going to happen. Yep. And so you might as well yep. just address it because your management team's not stupid. <laughs> yeah, turn it into a positive. That's exactly yep. right. What are what are some of the things that you see, Kevin, that as you know, as you're going through due diligence or you're, you're going through this process, you're trying to get to the goal line. What are the some of the big hangups that you see that um, there's someone like that, that that's an owner that hasn't gone through this that they could potentially expect? Well, I expect the due diligence to be um, torture. Uh, if you have that mindset, you're not going to be surprised. Expect them to go through everything. Expect it's going to take longer than you think is reasonable. Expect the deal not to close because then you you won't get your emotions out of whack because the deal is going to crater a couple of times before it ever closes. So you have to be built for that. You have to assume it's not going to close. Um, so you have to protect your business as if it's not going to close. Uh, you have to protect yourself emotionally, you and your family. Don't count your chickens until they're in your bank account. That's a big deal. People really get themselves uh, in a hard spot when they've already counted their money. Sometimes they spend it before they get it, and now the deal craters, and they, they become very emotional about that. Uh, so those are things we really yeah. try to counsel our clients away from. But anything that's wrong with your business, and every seller knows the, basically the warts on their deal, you need to fix those. You cannot ignore them anymore. The buyer's going to figure it out. Now's the time to do it. No, that's well said. And um, you know the the you mentioned about the emotional thing. I mean, do you see this as one of the big hindrances too? Because all the other stuff is very tactical, right? Like you, you know, it's just kind of binary. Like you just need to do it, and there's kind of no there's no way around it. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen as you know as buyers are emotionally processing this? You know, it, yeah. You see that as a big, a big challenge. 
Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So you've got a seller who is an entrepreneur who's ADD. They're not very calm about life. I mean, they go out and they run through walls every day for their business. And now they got a buyer jerking them around with due diligence or legal documents. And these sellers aren't equipped for that. They're not prepared for it. As the advisor, I've got to stick in there with them and talk them down from the ledge often. Uh, we had a client uh, came in my office and sat down. He said, I'm done. He said, all I've done is give, give, give on this, on this deal. And I said, well, Chuck, let's go down the list here. And I rattled off 10 things the buyer had asked for. Each one of them, Chuck had said no. And he got it. He won. And I said, Chuck, you haven't given anything. You're just tired from the, the going back and forth and the stress of making these decisions and the stress of losing the deal. You haven't given them anything. He goes, <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been, I've been winning, haven't I? <laughs> I said, yes. Yes, you, yes, you are the man, Chuck. You are the man. And you've been winning on every one of them. So I said, just relax. you got to control that paranoia uh, and the fear and just, just relax. It's either going to happen or it's not. Just stay relaxed and don't worry. Either way it goes, you either have a great business or you have a big check in your pocket. So this is a win-win, Chuck. Just, just try to relax. They, they're pretty intense people. They really have a hard time dealing with all the ups and downs of the process. Well, and it's uh, the only other thing that for any owner that hasn't gone through the, like everybody's heard or talked to someone that's built a house and all the decisions they have to make. And it's like that mm-hmm. times a thousand, <laughs> like as, as right. eventually you don't care about the knobs on the door handles of your bathroom. Right. <laughs> that's exactly. That's exactly. We had a client that came in and he said, I'm done. I'm not giving any more. I said, basically what they wanted was a $200 item. I said, Dude, you're going to get $50 million next week. Just relax. I'll pay the 200 bucks. Just relax. This is not going to keep everything in, in perspective. No. So uh, the, emo- the emotions are often the reason the deal doesn't close. Well, and then, uh, you know, you had mentioned too is, um, you know, expect the deal not to close, Kevin. And like in, you know, we actually did this for years. It was like, we're selling, we're not selling, we're selling. I, you know, I just had to actually sellers whiplash emotionally and, and which made it yep. unfortunately easier when we did it because it was just like, I was kind of numb to it, but we were running the business as is. And you have, you know, you have that in your book where so many, you know, if they take the, the their eye off the ball, how like they could go back into a shit storm with their company. I mean, any yep. to the, the listeners? Yep, it's very true. You got to keep, you got to run a business as if you're not going to sell it. You have to watch out for deal fatigue, which we're describing here, is what it's called. Uh, and you got to fight it. You got to, you got to protect yourself emotionally throughout the deal. Make sure you get some time away to relax. Make sure you have an advisor to help you evaluate: is this a bad deal or a good deal, or is this is this an important point? And you know, keep your eye on the the, the goal line. Uh, that's that's what's important. And, and taking care of yourself emotionally. Some of these guys, just, they end up in a hospital and the deal's done. And there's, there's no reason for that. I've actually interviewed someone that literally did. <laughs> they, they yeah, yeah. And then the panic attack. You know, um, yeah. one more tactical thing is like, at, you know, what is your thoughts or how, how you know, the, your two cents for people where then when you say, you know, as people are prepping for the deal, so you talked about due diligence and your tax and your legal and all that stuff. But, for someone that is shortchanging and trying to play games with their EBITDA, do you have any warnings for them about, you know, you know, because like you said, run until like run it as if you're not going to sell, but people then do, you know, creative games, you know, quote unquote, but what would you, what would your two cents be for people that are trying that? Uh, if you're selling to professional buyers, it's not going to work. They're going to see, they're going to catch you. If they catch you playing games with the books like that, they will walk away. Because they will see that as an integrity issue in a, in a split second, so uh, mm-hmm. that won't work, and they and they will catch it. Yeah, I, I just uh, there's so many times you hear like, well, all I have to do is do this with my inventory, or I don't have to buy my servers for like a year or two, and it's like, well, someone that knows how to run a business is going to find all that stuff. <laughs> it's not you're not, yep. you're not tricking anybody. Correct. They're going to bring in uh, their IT due diligence team. They're going to figure out that your servers are two years overdue to be uh, replaced. Mm-hmm. They're going to charge your closing part. So Kevin, as, as we're wrapping up, I, I, this has been an absolute blast. If, if there's, you know, we talked, we covered some serious ground here. Is there one thing that you want to highlight or one thing that we didn't cover that you want to leave the listeners with? 
Yeah, the only thing I would say is for the first time in five years, I'm getting a little worried about the future. So if you're thinking about doing it, I would start to investigate now. I don't know if if, if these multiples are going to be there a year and a half from now. You know, the process takes nine months. So be careful as you're working through this. This market's not going to be there forever. So that's probably the biggest change I've seen in the last three months is that there is a there is a sense of uh, uh, negativity that's creeping into the M&A markets. You haven't seen it in price yet, but it's coming. Uh, so that's it. Be you know, be honest with yourself about it. Be honest. Make sure you get good advisors. Follow their advice. Um, I'd get the advisors now, way before you need them, uh, and get to know them. Have dinner with them. Get to know them for a year or two if you can, if you have time, before you even sell, uh, because they're going to be your life partner for a year. So it's going to be important you know them well. Kevin, this has been a blast. If the listeners want to get in touch with you, get your book, get to you. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, they could call 314-725-9939. Uh, they can go to ClaytonCapitalPartners.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and every other thing known to man. Um, so it's easy to find me or the book, Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price, How to Get More Than You Ever Thought Was Possible. Uh, and I love talking to them. I talk to, uh, to sellers every day of the week. So it's, it's fun to do. So, but thank you. Thanks for letting me be on your show. This has been a blast. This was a blast. I agree. All right. Thank you, Ryan. Hey, y'all, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Kevin. Absolutely one of the top episodes that I wish I would have listened to prior to selling our company because of the millions of dollars we could have saved, the better advisors we could have had. And just overall, I think every single listener and owner out there just needs to continuously learn more and more and more about what it would be like to sell your business because that deal fatigue is real. The absolute mental <laughs> anguish of going through due diligence and the getting jerked around by different buyers and the advisors, the whole thing is just a process. So the more you can learn, the better it's going to be for you and the more you're going to be able to control the entire process, which is why you're an entrepreneur anyways, because you're a control freak and that's okay. So do yourself the favor and continuously learn more. I can ask for a favor, go into iTunes, give me a rating. I appreciate it. It's reasons that I'm able to have people like Kevin on the show. If you have any thoughts about who would be a great guest on the show, let me know. Send me a LinkedIn and reach out. Otherwise, I will see you next week.